Well, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're in Haggai tonight, and um, this is a short book, but oddly enough, as we worked through the details of it, and then as we looked at the schedule, it would appear that I was planning on spending one week in it, and the Lord would prefer us to spend two. And so, um, in a book that you could title um, Self-Indulgence and God Neglect, um, we're in for a treat. Uh, and the uh, level of conviction that I expect uh, at least uh, some of us will hopefully fall under. So let's pray, and then we will dive in. We're going to spend a fair amount of time on uh, some background, um, because it's a short book, but there's so much going on uh, in the times around it. So let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll get to it. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. Uh, I thank you that we get to... Um, meet tonight to talk about your word. Uh, Lord, any time we open the word, it's good to be reminded that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for reproof and training, um, for correction. Uh, And then when we go to it, we are in fact trained up to do the good works you've called us to. And that's a good reminder when we're looking at the minor prophets, Lord, because Sometimes it feels very doom and gloom. And so tonight, uh, I pray that you would teach us as you see fit. Help us to be a people that genuinely humble ourselves before you and your word and respond to it as worshipers. Uh, Lord, I also pray, as, as I've prayed through most of these prophecy books, um, and as I suppose we could pray in any book, that, that we would be honest, that we would allow conviction to set in where it's supposed to, and that we would enjoy the fruit of it um, as we see, uh, see that process through uh, by the power of the Spirit and by the work of Christ. Uh, we love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Dever's approach to Haggai, it's right after Zephaniah. It's a short two-chapter book, and his approach is different than what I would have taken but as I looked at it, because I thought, I looked at it, and then I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. And then I thought, you know, Dever's pretty smart, and maybe he did that for a reason. And so I went back and looked at it again. And so I, I want to start with sort of an explanation. His approach is one that uses, as far as this book is concerned, his approach is one that uses terms regarding investments and returns. Now, it's fitting to talk about investments and returns, especially with the book of Haggai. But it, I think it needs a disclaimer um, because my skin begins to crawl for, for a reason. So here's the thing. You can use a physical illustration to explain a spiritual reality, or you can use a physical illustration to explain a physical reality. We're going for the spiritual thing tonight. So if we're talking about returns on investments, then we could just be like the most utterly consumer-driven worldly people tonight if we're just looking for a physical um, explanation. But if we're digging deeper, it's okay. The phrase return on investment when talking about church issues usually makes me cringe. It's kind, this kind of lingo that measures success in numbers only and will often refer to worshipers as giving units. Have y'all ever experienced that? I was in a meeting one time, not any time recent or having anything to do with this church. It was the church I grew up in. And I heard the pastor 
I was a teenager, and even as a teenager, I heard him refer to us as giving units. And even as a teenager who had no money, I was offended. I was like, wait, did you just call me a giving unit? Pastor? What in the world's going on? And so when we talk about returns on investments and giving units and we begin to refer to the church in business terms and all these things, um, it, it makes me uncomfortable. So I was, that's why I was uncomfortable with his illustration. And I thought maybe someone else might be. But as we look at it, as we utilize this imagery, what I want us to be clearly aware of is that we're talking about spiritual and eternal matters. So his outline is this. Poor investments show themselves. Poor investments show themselves. And that's the first 11 verses in chapter 1. Then the next three or four verses, uh, 12 through 15, the rest of chapter 1, is bad investment strategies must be corrected. And then the second chapter, which we'll tend to more next week, is that sound investments prove themselves in their returns. So I'm about to read this whole book out loud because we don't usually get to do that. Usually we get to do parts, but tonight we get to read the whole thing in, in one, uh, one swoop here. But as I read, I want you all to think about what he might be connecting in this outline and be thinking ahead. And I, think it will, I think it will contribute to more fruitful conversation. Poor investments show themselves, bad investment strategies must be corrected, and sound investments prove themselves in their returns. So let's read aloud. I mean, I'll read aloud. No one else. That'll be weird. Y'all listen. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for, your, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. This is not a good way to get a good return on your investment. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord. That's always good. You see God say something, you see God's people obey. This is a good thing. 
And it's kind of a rare thing as we're going through the prophets because usually it's sin and judgment, sin and judgment, blood, 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 death. And so that's always why this is encouraging. So here we see, oh, they obeyed. This is good. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, it's getting weird, right? (laughs) And touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, now what they offer there is unclean. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. 
on the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It might feel like we read the same story four times, because we did. So we have to do some background work to wrap our heads around this. Now, there were two really major exiles for God's people, right? What were the two? Babylonian and Assyrian. Okay, so I, I, I'm going to give you some background so we can understand, okay, what are they rebuilding? Which time is this? Is this the same as the previous exile that we talked about? Who's rebuilding what? Is, and why is it broken down? And so I, I want to really slowly work through this background because it will help us to make sense of the passage. From Dever in his overview survey, he explains it in 606. If you want to write down notes, this is helpful just for recalling it. In 606 BC, Jerusalem was first invaded by the Babylonians. So it was, it was prophesied that this was going to happen. And then in 606 is when it first began to happen. But it didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't just like, like in the movies, you see someone moving in and there's a battle for about an hour, maybe, and then everything's over. And that's not how this works. In 606 it began, and this was the time... Uh, when Daniel was taken off into exile. Remember when Daniel was taken off, King Nebuchadnezzar, all that? This was that time. A second invasion occurred in 597, so about you know, roughly 10 years later. That's when Ezekiel was taken into exile. The city was besieged again in 587, so you got these 10-year increments, roughly, when it happens. And in 587... Uh, is when it was besieged, and in 586, Jerusalem finally fell and was burned to the ground. Okay? So, we've got this range of about 20 years where the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, as was said would happen, as, what, as said would happen in the scriptures. And over the course of 20 years, finally Jerusalem fell and was burned to the ground. The temple was destroyed in that moment. The temple in Jerusalem. In 538, now we just got a few more dates, bear with me, this is important. Almost 50 years later, the Babylonians themselves were overrun by Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, this is yet another example of how, no matter how powerful the empire is, when godless, they will fall. Um, one empire has been, all, been replaced by another empire as long as we have recorded history. And so, the the... Israelites were in exile during this time of Babylon for about five decades. And so things changed over that course of time. And um, in 536, a large number of Jews were able to return because Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire, a couple of years into his reign, um, issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And he even promised some financing to help them rebuild the temple. So the fact that the temple had fallen was still significant, and the fact that it could be rebuilt was still significant, and Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire has, is going to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem, 
and even help finance the rebuilding of the temple. So in 536 BC, now we're, what is that, 70 years into the story? 536 BC, a large number of Jews, most of the historians estimate around 50,000, 50,000, made their return, a 900-mile journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Right before it. And so they, um, 900 mile journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. These who returned laid the foundation stone to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, but then were effectively stopped by the Samaritans. A number of years passed, and the Persian Empire went through a couple of different rulers. Then, this is the date we're looking for, in 522, Darius came to the throne, and it was during this time period that Darius reigned over Persia and Haggai preached. So this was the time period. So I'm, I'm shocked at kind of how specific they're able to get, but from late August to mid-December in 520 B.C., Haggai gave four prophecies, these four little God-inspired sermons that comprised the two chapters that we know as the book of Haggai. So anyone have any questions about that? That's a lot of background, but I think it's important for us to understand why we're talking about rebuilding the temple. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. In the first 11 verses, who's being addressed? Joshua's one. Zerubbabel. Anyone else? Yep. And it, and, it, and it says the people. So the people are being addressed through the leadership here. And um, in the first 11 verses, God's own people are the ones that he is addressing. It's important to remember this because sometimes in the prophecies when God's addressing his people, it's kind of difficult because it seems like they're not his people. And the reason is because they're not acting like they're his people. So it doesn't sound like he's addressing his people. So it's important to remember who he's addressing. What are they guilty of in these first 11 verses? I, let, let, me, let me read um, in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of the Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. He who earns wages does not does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. What are they guilty of? Self-centeredness. Not being good stewards of their resources. Not putting God first, yeah. That word indulgence is a good word because that's what they're doing here. It's not that they're just busy with things. They're, they're indulging. The, what, how are their houses described? Nice. Paneled. Ooh, paneled, right? Paneled houses. Do any of you have paneled houses? Yeah, th- this, this is self-indulgence. And the result of the self-indulgence, or maybe the cause of the self-indulgence, depending on how you look at it, is, that, is they're neglecting God. The Israelites had been living back in the land for 16 years at this point. 
So when, we get, when they get this message, they had already been there for 16 years before God says, Hey guys, <laughs> what about my house? Which is interesting. So the question is, were the Israelites broke? No. What were they spending their money on? Yeah, drink, their own houses, their fancy paneled houses, their food. Um, what does that include? What are we talking about when we say these are the things they're spending their money on? They're spending their money on what? Their what? Lifestyle. Their lifestyle, their wants, themselves, their image. Why would one want a paneled house of all things? Status? Safety? Oh, yeah. If there's no holes in your walls, lest things get in. There's, there's, uh, there's comfort, esteem. I mean, they, you know, it's all of a sudden they come out of exile and they find, oh, well, I need this. Well, well, I need this. Well, I need this. If anyone's ever had the the privilege of being completely broke in your life, which I hope some of us have. I don't hope it for you in the future necessarily. Maybe. It depends if where you're at with your finances. But um, if you've ever had the privilege of being completely broke and thinking, if I could just make X amount, I'll be so happy. I, I remember when I first went full-time here and I thought, we are loaded now. This is amazing. <laughs> Because we started at like 150 bucks a week, and we didn't have any kids, so it worked. And uh, and then it was like a salary. Oh my goodness! I wanted to do cartwheels. I even said I'm gonna do cartwheels down Wesley. I, I'm so happy. This is amazing. Can't believe I get to do full time ministry. And while I still appreciate that moment, <laughs> what soon became clear was how quickly all that can be spent. Before you know it, that you didn't know there was a void that needed to be filled. And these things that were not needs the week before, well, certainly we need this. And if we need this, we're going to need two of these. And if we need two of these, we've got to have this to go with them. And blah, blah. And it's almost like some of us have experienced this. No matter how much you make, there's always something else to spend it on. Like a lot of people now are at a point, some, not everybody, but some people are at a point where they're making more than they've ever made, yet they have less left over than they've ever had as well because there's always something to spend it on. That's what they were experiencing here. Hey, we're back. Oh, we need some houses. Okay, what kind of houses? Paneled houses. Okay, what are you going to fill them with? Good food. Okay, well, this is not, and you, it just kind of runs away with itself, looking for comfort, looking for esteem. Uh, I, want, I, I share all that to say, I don't think it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be spending your money on things that make you happy while neglecting God. I, I mean, that's like a definition of our culture and our world, and we're supposed to be different in that. And sometimes we're not as different as we're supposed to be. Interestingly, what was the result of their spending on the economy? Anyone pick up on that? Shortages. Well, how does that work, right? How does that work? Because generally, when spending is up, 
the economy is up, right? That's why one of our presidents decided to move the holiday season a week forward to give the boost to the economy so people would start spending more money. This was not recent. This was years ago. And we just perpetuated it like a hundredfold. And so, um, like, have y'all gotten your Black Friday deals yet? Like, that, that's when you spend money. It's good for the economy. Interestingly enough here, they spent money and the economy tanked. Why? God blew it away. Don't forget he can do that, right? Like logic says, you, you're going to spend some money and the economy's going to go up and the more we spend, it's good and then everyone's got more because we're spending more. Somehow it's amazing. And God says, I will ruin that. I will interrupt that. And that's what he did here. He says, I blew it away in verse 9. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. <laughs> Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins. When God has a desire for something and his people are not moving according to his desire, he can move in a way that is counterintuitive, illogical, backwards from what you would have expected. And he will get your attention. That's what he's saying here. So the result of their spending in the economy was a wreck because simply God blew it away. Now, God's made it clear that he wants his house rebuilt, right? Turn to 2 Samuel 7. We were just here recently in the Lord's covenant with David. So this is fresh from Sunday's message, which I hope you heard. And if you didn't, you need to go listen, because we are supposed to be a people who care about the Lord's covenant with David. It's one of those promises, those covenant realities that we draw on as we're going through life. As Christians in 2015, we're not supposed to be foolish to these covenants. We're supposed to be well aware of them and setting our minds on them, considering them. And so we were just there on Sunday. And so when I'm looking at this going, he really cares about his temple being rebuilt. He really cares about his house being rebuilt. And I was thinking about the first guy who came up with that idea and how something wasn't adding up. And so go with me on this little journey to 2 Samuel 7, verse 2. The king said to Nathan the prophet, um, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. It was probably cedar panels. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I, was, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I, where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So what gives? Right? That was where I went because we were just there on Sunday. He really cares about building the house here. And here it's like the stupidest idea David ever had. And God had to tell Nathan so that Nathan could give it to David. Why do y'all think it's important here in Haggai when it wasn't important here in David's covenant? Why do y'all think? Part of it was David wasn't the person to build it. Part of it was David wasn't the person to build it. 
Yeah. Their priorities were different. How? Okay. What else? Why else might it be important now when it wasn't as important back then? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, David always had a problem with God's timing. He was a man after God's own heart, but man, he jumped the gun on a couple big deals, right? Okay. Why else might it have been important here and not there? Yep. Priorities being in line with where they should have been. Uh huh. So why had it been built the first time? Yeah. Why had it been built the first time? Why why was it built the first time before it was torn down this time? Exactly. God told him to do it. So in God's timing he changes. I want us to understand that because I feel like we need to go there because this was like Sunday sermon that God was like, why would you build me a house? I've never asked for a house. At one point, he decided that that was what was best in his timing and in his wisdom. And so they built it and then it was knocked down. So here's what's going on here. Why does God care so much about rebuilding the temple? Let's, let's consider this. What would it communicate from the people standpoint? If these people who have been in captivity for 50 years have been back in this freedom for 16 years, what would it communicate from the people's standpoint, if they rebuilt the temple? Yeah, that God still matters, right? That they still want and they still value God and that he is a higher priority than everything else clamoring for their attention in their lives. Interestingly enough, they had very new things clamoring for their attention in Jerusalem than they did in exile, Right? There were new things that wanted their attention, and this would be a way for them to say, our attention is Godward. So it says something from the people's standpoint. What about the nation's standpoint? What would it say for the nation of Israel to rebuild the temple? God's special people. The God of Israel has not gone out of business when Jerusalem fell. That's what would be communicated in the rebuilding. And then there, what about from God's standpoint? What has he already told us in Haggai about what rebuilding it would do? Yeah, focus the people's priorities. Glorify him. Turn over to 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. Go for it. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. This is uh, 6.11. just says, um, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, we're further down the road, concerning this house that you're building. 
If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. It's interesting. What does he connect to the building of the house? What did you say? His favor on them? Obedience? Yeah. The, either, either God is just not cohesive in his thoughts here, or there's a significant connection between the house of the Lord and the obedience of his people. Because he says, now, concerning this house that you're building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules, you'll be good to go. That'd be like me saying, concerning the car you drove here, if you don't break the rules, you're good to go. It's like, wait, what's the connection here? And for, for God, the connection is, it is representative of his dwelling with his people, of the covenant that he's made with his people, and he's making sense here by making a deep connection between his house and them obeying the rules, keeping the commandments, walking in them, and then him promising to dwell with them in that place. So for the nation of Israel, the temple is a symbol of God's living among the Israelites and not abandoning them or his covenant promises. And it would be a reminder in the rebuilding to say, I didn't abandon you during the exile either because you still exist. Anytime God's people gather anywhere on the planet, it's a reminder of the significance of his promises and how enduring they are because we still exist. As I've gone through the prophecies and just kind of waded through some things that I've never really waded through before and I see what's going on and then as I've studied, I've been studying church history lately a lot and like the fact that anyone on earth still loves God is pretty significant proof of God. Like there's no other reason for it. There's been so many times where they could have just been stomped out completely but we still exist because God has a plan and he's made promises that are utterly enduring. So the observation follows then that when the temple was destroyed, the people were scattered. But now that the people are gathered, it's fitting for the temple to be rebuilt. Do we see that together? Do we see that? As the temple was torn down, the people were scattered. Now they're gathered together. It's fitting to rebuild the temple. But clearly, the temple was not being rebuilt. That's the issue that's being addressed in Haggai. It's not happening. So we'll bring this to where we're at. What would be a sign or some signs that we today are neglecting the Lord? And is there anywhere that you're not all in? And if so, what's holding you back? What are some ways that we might be neglecting the Lord? Some signs that the Lord is being neglected by his people. Where we spend our time and our money. Yeah. How might, it, how might we find evidence of neglect? Yeah. Yeah. Being distracted when you look back on the day and saying, okay, well, what was, what was that? Remember, throughout these prophecies, they're worshiping wholeheartedly. They're going through all the right motions. It wasn't a matter of them doing the wrong things. It was a matter of the heart they were doing them with. What are some other evidences that we might be neglecting the Lord the way they were neglecting the Lord in Haggai? The calendar. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a worthwhile endeavor. Like, it seems very, uh, I guess, practical and what, it's not bad, but like, just because you say something's a priority doesn't mean it's a priority. I think we live in a culture that, well, I said it was a priority. 
Well, you haven't done anything about it. But I said, it's important to me. Look at your schedule. Look at your money. Look at your time. Look at your money. Two limited resources that all belong to God that you've been blessed with a measure of. And if you say something is a priority and no time or money goes to it, it's not a priority. Like, it sounds dumb to have to say that out loud, right? But, man, think about, well, this is a huge priority in my life. When's the last time you spent two seconds on it? Like, I love to think I'm a woodworker. I love doing woodworking. I've even got a little shop set up with some things to do woodworking with. Woodworking's a priority in my life. No, it's not. I haven't done any woodworking in months. Or at least it hasn't been a priority in months, so I can't say it's a current priority. It has fallen off of the priority list into something altogether over here that's dead and languishing. So the question is really, I mean, we talk about making God a priority and making his priorities our priorities. Look at your money and look at your time. Are you actually spending it in that direction? I want you to notice how God disciplines his people according to their sin. It matches up. How, how does he discipline them? What's the discipline that comes across from God to his people in this chap in these uh, in Haggai? There's no money. He takes away the thing they were depending on. The thing they were depending on proved to not be dependable. That was the way that God disciplined them. Have y'all ever experienced any version of that? Let's see who's feeling gutsy. Anyone want to share? Job, husband? Appreciate your honesty. Have you experienced um, putting your hope in something and then that thing failing? Not delivering? Not being worth putting your hope in? Yeah, yeah, your mind's it's all mine. Yep, my silver, my gold, yeah. 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 I had started a really great job and become really good friends with the owner of the company out of Canada and I was going up there. We were traveling all over. Life was good. And my dad got sick. And went to the hospital. Two days later, my friend called and said he was no longer with the company. And I was like, go to. Wow. Ten-year plan, and the, the silent partner came back in and just got rid of everything. Wow! It was like stepping on the trash floor. Yeah. I didn't know what to do, but uh, it uh, ended up giving me uh, three years to spend with my dad. Yeah. Look at that. Everybody said, "Oh, you're such a great guy." I thought, "Gotta hear all the whining." <laughs> yeah. good. Man, the Lord will get our attention and show us that whatever we're putting our faith in that's not him will fail. And the interesting thing is, I've never met one person who put their faith in the Lord and he failed them. Like, we can all say that in sobriety sitting here, God doesn't fail us. But do we really believe it? And if we believe it, we'll be shown in where we're putting our faith. Because we go to these other things. Look at verse 7. It's interesting. When you see repeated things in the scriptures, um, that's there so that you 
pay attention and ask why was that repeated. And he says, um, well, look at verse 5. He says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In this imbalance of priorities that's going on here in Haggai, God calls his people to consider your ways. It is fitting to take an introspective look at our hearts and the actions that flow from our hearts. There's some questions that Dever has asked in his book that just some insight when you don't want to ask convicting questions of people, you, you quote someone who has convicting questions and that, that's what I'm going to do right here because I think they're good. I think they're really appropriate. If you say I'm wrong, you kind of sound like one of those TV evangelists. I told someone tonight that tonight's study is sort of the TV evangelist um, and then next week is somehow, this is the hellfire and brimstone. If you, if you turn from God, it, it's going to go terribly wrong. But then next week is the, the health and wealth prosperity thing. So y'all, y'all tune in for that. Um, not quite the same, but similar, I guess, um, in a true way. Um, questions for you to consider in closing. You know, it just seems appropriate to see God in just a few verses say, consider your ways. Is your lack of giving leading to your financial difficulties? I experienced that in my life. A lack of giving leading to my financial difficulties. It was so weird how when I decided to tithe, we looked at the check and we were like, we're so backed into the corner with all these silly payments, I couldn't tithe if my life depended on it. <laughs> okay, so let's sell some stuff. And somehow you, you work it out and you go and then when you start giving faithfully, you find that the 90% or whatever percent you're left with after you've prayed and decided on it tends to go a lot further. So he asks these questions. Why should God entrust you with more wealth? Each of you might be thinking, wealth? Ha! But if you're sitting in this room, you're among the wealthiest people that have ever walked planet Earth. We complain a lot, and we have it a lot better than much of the world. I have been very convicted lately about complaining about ministry. I've been getting kind of a little funk for a few months. Ministry's hard. I'm I'm tired. I'm tired of being tired. And I think ministry makes me tired. Oh, I can't quit ministry. I'm called to it. And I whine, whine, whine. And then you turn on the news and see people dying for their faith and being tortured, all these different things. It's like, what are we complaining about? What are we complaining about? This question is helpful. Why should God entrust you with more wealth? What do you do with it? This is a good one. What if he created the wealth he has given you specifically to do good things in his creation, but instead of being a highway of blessing, you have become the dead end for the wealth he gave you? Is it stopping with you? Are you doing more with it or less with it? Have your ratios changed? As you make more money, there's a point where you could praise a couple and say, should we go above 10%? Like, that was the whole point. It wasn't... your, your generosity of heart is not measured by what you give, but by what you keep, is what they say. That's why the widow's might was so significant. She, she didn't keep anything. But these other guys who were giving large percentages still had way more over here. So it's not measured by what you give, it's measured by what you keep. 
I'll read that one again. What if he created the wealth he has given you specifically to do good things in his creation, but instead of being a highway of blessing, you've become the dead end for the wealth he gave you? Why would he give you any more? Pray for the grace of God to lead you and teach you from his word what to do with your money. It seems like a fitting time to mention our youth need money to do mission work. That doesn't make me a sideways preacher to, oh, he threw that in there. It's a need. It's for good things. We're hoping to gather $3,600 by Monday morning to send out to get these plane tickets so that nine people can go to Munich and do awesome ministry work. So if you're convicted by the previous thoughts, I wanted to share the latter with you. Conviction and confession lead to liberation. Do you believe that? Conviction and confession, if you're convicted and you confess, you've got to move in that obedience, that responsiveness, which we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Conviction and confession lead to liberation. What makes that hard to believe? Fear of doing it. Yeah. Why else is it hard to believe? Selfishness. Could be fear. Could be, I don't want to let go of that. I don't want to have to sit and look at my budget for that hard, that long of a time. I don't want to have to scrutinize my spending. I like Chick-fil-A. Whatever. I think we often believe it will only lead to more conviction. And sometimes we believe we can't handle any more conviction. It is a biblical reality that conviction and confession lead to liberation. You will not be more... Uh, hindered through it, you will be freed. There is liberation in it. Absolutely. If there's anything that you're holding on to that you don't want to let go of, if you're not all in in some area, be all in. There's liberation in it. I remember meeting with a friend who we were in discipleship and he went from being a believer to being an atheist. And as you know, that is not the goal of discipleship. Um, <laughs> Some may feel as if I may have failed in that endeavor. But we were talking about faith, and I asked if his science was fuel for his faith or foundation for his faith, and he said foundation. And I said, well, that's the wrong answer. It can be fuel, but it can't be foundation. He pretty much said, you're a big fat jerk. And I said, no, I'm not. I love you. And he said, well, whatever. I don't want to talk to you right now. And so he left, and then he came back the next week, and he said, thank you for freeing me. I have never believed, nor will I ever believe. I am so, I feel so free. I said, well, that... That wasn't my goal. Um, can we talk about it more? And as we continued to meet, he said, look, man, you know, I, I don't believe this, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of information that would cause, cause you to maybe, maybe fall in line with I, where I am. He said, look, man, you're, you're a minister. Are you sure you want to go down this road with me and really work, you know, work on all this and dig deeper? Because if you don't believe, it means a lot more for you because that's your job. And a part of me, for a minute, said, that's a good point. I, I don't, but then I was like, what? No, I'm all in. You're either all in or you're not. Like, I, I told him, I, I'm, I'm completely all the chips in the middle of the table, and the gambling's not good. All the chips in the middle, I'm all in. I, I, I'm not hedging my bets elsewhere. I believe this wholeheartedly. We'll go down the road as far as you want to go because I believe God will absolutely deliver, and he'll show us what's true. I'm all in. I can't be half in. I can't hedge my bets elsewhere the way they've done all throughout the prophecies. I think that's what makes it hard to believe. 
Um, if you're not all in somewhere, if you're holding back somewhere, know that conviction and confession will absolutely lead to liberation. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to talk about this a little bit, just a little bit, and then we'll talk about it more next week. 1 Corinthians 3. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. How do the promises of Christ that have been fulfilled in Christ affect the way we read Haggai? How do the promises of Christ that have been fulfilled in Christ affect the way that we read Haggai according to those two verses? Yeah, our lives should be devoted to God and and what would building the temple look like? Taking care of ourselves and taking care of one another. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the big kicker here, right? We're to be spent on one another. Think about all the verses that talk about how you treat other people. You put their interests above your own. You look not only to your own interests. You are to spend and be spent gladly on their souls. I mean, there's all these different things about the way we treat one another, the way we help one another, the way we have this interconnected life. Remember John 17, I and me, I and them and they and me and us, so that, that, so that the world may know. Like the way we move together is how the world knows that God is, that Jesus is Lord. And so we're to be spent on one another. Dever has a, a quote, he says, if you're a true follower of Christ, you want to see the people who sit all around you Sunday after Sunday or Wednesday after Wednesday built up in Christ. That's what we should want, to see one another built up. If we're the temple, and this urging in Haggai is to build the temple and not neglect it for other things, we have to make sure not to neglect one another in our pursuit of the things that we'd prefer, the things that make us comfortable, the things that the culture is tempting us with. So just a closing question, or two questions, I guess. If poor investments show themselves, which is kind of the point here tonight, how might they be shown in regards to one another? And or how might good investments be seen in fruit? If this is happening with us and we're building one another uprightly, how are we going to see if it's happening or if it's not happening? I absolutely want you to answer. Yeah. Yeah. A tree will be known by its fruit, so what are, what's some fruit that we might see to, to see that this is happening, that we're building one another up? Yeah, patient with one another. You go right down the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If God's people are marked by that and marked by our love for one another and for those outside the church, then this is happening. 
But if we're inward focused, maybe it's not happening. If we're not seeing love, or if we're impatient, or if we're angry, you take the opposites of the fruits of the Spirit. It's not happening. I think one way that it is seen is that we're continuing. I mean, it's, it's not just the result that everyone's going to be some big rock star that is amazing and blows everybody's minds with their Christianese and all these things. It, a lot of it's just common like, you know what? I can look at someone and say, you're continuing. You're one foot in front of the other. Praise the Lord. Let's keep doing that until the end. There's a significant encouragement that we're going to explore a little bit next week on the blessing of obedience. That's what we're talking about there. If everyone around you is growing as a temple, that's a significant blessing. So there's a, you know, the question is, do you believe that God blesses obedience? Do you believe there's still curses for disobedience like we talked about on Sunday? And if so, how do we see it? What does that look like? That's where we're going to go next week. So this week, at the very least, I want us to see uh, this reality that it is... Uh, utterly possible to say that God is a priority and him not be a priority and it's reflected in our self-indulgence. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your time with us tonight and just that you would continue to bear with us the way you bear with everyone who has gone before us. Um, Thank you for changing us. Thank you for not just putting up with us, but for loving us, like bearing with us in love to such a degree that in the midst of disobedience in the midst of even paganism that you've again and again called out your people to seek you to come to you to turn lord you are so patient and you are so loving and we are so blessed in christ help us to be people who are about your work your kingdom and who are in turn about other people and not ourselves Lord, help us to spend and be spent gladly on the souls of your children, seeing every opportunity um, as significant and using our words wisely and considering our time and our money and how it all belongs to you. And we will absolutely either show fruit at the end or not in the way that we have spent it. We love you, Lord. We want to be holy. We want to be obedient. And we know that that comes from you moving and working and changing our spirit by the work of the Holy Spirit. We ask for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.